How many of you have, have had in your life someone ask you, probably when you were younger, I would assume, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right? Most of us have been asked that question at some point in time. We might still be answering, I don't know yet, I haven't grown up. But that's a whole other discussion to have, right? The, the answers to that question are typically, I want to be a sports star, or I want to be an actress, or I want to be the President of the United States, or I want to be a doctor, or I want to be a teacher, a lawyer, I want to own a business. I don't think in all the years that I have asked that question or been asked that question or been around people when the question was asked, I don't think I have ever heard anyone ask the question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the answer was, I want to be a servant. Because in our culture and society, we equate being a servant with failure. That's not how we view success. In our culture, success is making a lot of money. It's being the boss over people. It's controlling things. It's running things. That's what it means to be a success, not to be a servant. And what might be most disturbing is that often we give the same image in the church about success. Often in the church, we say to people, if you want to be a success, then you run this program or you're in charge of this or you get to sit on this board or committee that makes decisions. It's about power and influence, not all that unlike the society around us. And we, as the church, have a tendency to equate being a servant with failure. Jesus has a different idea. I can almost see Jesus saying to the disciples, what do you guys want to be when you grow up spiritually? James and John say, "Um, Jesus, when you bring in your kingdom, not we want to be the lowest, but we want to sit on your right and left hand. We want to be in the highest places of power and authority in your kingdom. And Jesus just shakes his head. How many times do the disciples get into an argument about not who's the least in the kingdom, but who's the greatest in the kingdom? And we wrestle with that same question over and over and over again. And so Jesus tells us this little parable about being a servant. And he says, in essence... If you want to be one of my disciples, you will be a servant. Being a servant is one of the identifying characteristics of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, when we look at this parable, the little thing about the servant, one of the things that might come to us initially is we might be thinking, wow, that's not a very complimentary picture of God. If God is the master, man, he's a taskmaster. He, he is really grinding it out with people. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do. He's not trying to make a point that this is what God is like. Neither is Jesus condoning the whole institution of slavery and the heinous nature of that. 
He, he is not saying, well, slavery is no big deal. He is simply connecting them with something that is a, that is a significant part of their culture and society at that time. And if we think being a servant is something no one would want to strive for, how much more them because it is a part of their world. An ugly part, by and large, of their world. And neither do I think Jesus is primarily saying that this is about serving God. I think what he's saying is... I'm calling you to be servants of God by being servants of each other. And that makes sense because where is our most difficult place of struggle? Where do we feel the pain deep inside of us? When we think about the the difficulties that we're wrestling with in life... I would say most of the time it has something to do with relationships. People have hurt us, disappointed us, turned on us, attacked us. And we are struggling with the reality of a relationship that is causing us all kinds of pain and heartache and struggle. And we see it affecting our lives. And I think Jesus is trying to help us understand... If you're going to be a servant of God, you have to be servants of each other. Isn't that what John is saying in in his first letter? When he writes, don't tell me you love God and hate your brothers and sisters. It just doesn't work that way. If you hate your brothers and sisters, you don't love God. They are connected. And so Jesus says at the beginning of this chapter, there are some relational Issues that you have to approach as a servant in order to to bring out the solution that I want to bring out in your life. And he says in verse 3, he says, if a a brother or sister uh, offends you, sins against you, he says, rebuke them. And I think there is inherent in what he's saying there, this idea that if we have the kind of faith in God that serves God, then that will come out in loving confrontation toward other people who need that. I'm hesitant to even talk about confrontation as a servant because most of the time confrontation isn't done in a loving, serving spirit. I I think I've said to you before, I had someone say to me years ago, I I have the gift of confrontation. (laughs) I said to them, you're right, you do have the gift of confrontation, but I don't think it's from the Holy Spirit. For them, confronting was anger, bitterness. They were, they, it was about control. It was about trying to tell people off because they didn't like what they were doing. There was nothing of love in it at all. And certainly, they didn't do that in a humble servant spirit at all. You think about a servant who goes to his, sees his master making decisions that are ruining the master's life. And the servant loves his master so much that he goes to him and says, that's harming you and I don't want to see you harmed. I love you too much to just let that go. You talk about sticking out your neck, taking a risk. 
And it's in that kind of humble, loving, servant spirit that we speak to each other when confrontation is needed. He goes on after that to talk about forgiveness. And he says, if someone sins against you and they come and say, forgive me, the only answer to that is, you're forgiven. There is no, well, let me think about it. There is no, let me see if you're serious about it. Please forgive me, you're forgiven. And Jesus says, if he comes one time, two times, three times, he says seven here. Another place, Peter says, is seven enough? And Jesus says, how about 70 times seven? In other words, just stop counting, just forgive. And someone comes to us and they ask our forgiveness for something, we say, I forgive you. And they come a second time for the same thing and we say, okay, I'll forgive you. And they come a third time and we step back and say, I'm going to have to think about this a little bit. You get to seven and we're saying, wait a minute, this isn't something, I'm not doing this anymore. Much less 70 times seven. But as a servant, as someone who cares about this person, we keep forgiving. Because this is what God does for us. Now there is a working out of the forgiveness and in terms of Sometimes it takes a bit of time for us to to feel inside that things are right between us and this person. But we are not, as servants, we have no right to withhold forgiveness from another person. And that's what being a servant is about. We give up our right to hold on to our grudges. We give up our right to hold on to that bitterness and that anger and that hatred We forgive. Because as servants, we give up our rights to anything else. And he begins this section by talking about how we treat those who are vulnerable and sacrificing for them. He says, things that cause people to sin, they're bound to come. But woe to that person through whom they come. Be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than for them to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. When people are going to sin, stuff's going to happen. But if we have anything to do with people sinning, wow. There are serious consequences to that. There is a a, a sentence that's spoken in virtually every wedding ceremony. And it's probably overlooked by most people. Most of the time, we don't think that much about it. But it does, it does come. And in most ceremonies, the, the person officiating says this sentence. After the couple has exchanged their vows, after they have shared their rings, put the rings on each other, each finger, the officiant says, now that this man and woman have given their lives to, to each other through vows and they've exchanged rings with each other, I now pronounce to you they are husband and wife together in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the the next sentence, the last part of that says, the efficient says, those whom God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, if I were to paraphrase that, and I've, I've had thoughts of this sometime to stop the wedding ceremony right there and to do that, but I've decided not to do it to the couple But I want to say, you all do understand what that says. And that's not my word. These are Jesus' words. And he says, if you do anything 
to disintegrate this relationship, if you do anything to bring, to bring division and separation and trouble to this relationship, God help you. You're in trouble. And that's one thing. And this happens to all of us. There are relationships in our lives. There are vulnerable people in our lives that we simply have to say, I'm going to sacrifice for them. I have to be careful about how I live because it affects people who are vulnerable, spiritually vulnerable, vulnerable because of their age, vulnerable because of what they don't know about the gospel and the church. Earlier this summer, it was an article in Christianity Today magazine about a woman. I, I got the feeling she was probably in her late 20s, early 30s. Grew up in a home where uh, they didn't, didn't have any alcohol in their home. And uh, as she got older, most of her friends were drinking. And when she turned 21, that became a part of her life as well. Nothing serious. Just, you know, she and her friends hang out at the bar or, you know, they some wine over a meal or, you know, it was... Nothing she couldn't handle. When she got married, she and her husband just continued this practice. And it was just part of their lives, as it is for a lot of people. After they'd been married a few years, they, just, they felt called by God to move into an apartment building located in the inner city of one of the cities of this country. And there, she said, life was very different. It was not unusual for her to walk out of the apartment and go down the steps and have to step over a man who was passed out drunk at 11 o'clock in the morning. She would hear people coming home drunk and getting into huge arguments. She, the police would come and arrest men for being drunk and beating their wives and their children. She saw what it did to the people who lived in their apartment complex. And one day she was going into the liquor store to get some wine or something. And out came one of the people she recognized from her building loaded down with alcohol. And in that moment she had a sense from the Holy Spirit saying, What you're doing is your right. But would you give up that right because of how these people can't handle it? And so from that moment on, she and her husband said, no more. And we're not trying to judge other people. We're just simply saying, God convicted us to give up that. Because it was a negative influence on people who are vulnerable. And I suspect there are things in our lives that we, God may be leading us to give up. It's our right and we have the freedom to do all kinds of things. But we give it up because of other people. And it's not just negative things. It's positive too. We decide I'm going to give up my time on Wednesday night so that I'll come and I'll work with our children's ministry or on Sunday night to work with the youth group. Or I'm going to give up my time to to make a meal for somebody who is in need. Or I'm going to go up to the nursing home and visit with people who maybe tomorrow won't even remember I was there. I'm going to take time to listen to a child talk to me even though I can't really make sense out of what they're saying. But I love them and care about them. Maybe it has to do with, with someone that in your dorm room or in your apartment building that you know needs a friend and they're high energy. And you're willing to give up your time and your energy to be that friend. 
as servants. In a sense, our lives aren't our own. We sacrifice. We give up for people who are vulnerable and who have needs. Fred Craddock says that a lot of us like to think of giving our lives to God as sort of laying this $1,000 bill on the table and saying, Lord, here's my life, here's all of it. And we're kind of thinking of our lives going sort of up in a blaze of glory. And people standing back and saying, wow, look at all the sacrifice they made. Look at that. That's amazing. He says, actually, I think it's more appropriate to think that God would say to us, take that $1,000 bill and go to the bank and cash it in for quarters. And spend your lives every day serving 25 cents here, 50 cents there, 75 cents there. Maybe every so often a dollar here. Just being a servant in everyday life to everyday people in everyday ways without recognition. And lots of time without anyone ever knowing what we've done. We just do it. It is a lifestyle we embrace. It's not a one-time decision. It becomes our identity. It's who we are as people of God. We're servants. Jesus says, it's our, you come to the end of it, it's our duty. It's, it's just our lives. It's just what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We serve. We give of ourselves. And we can't help everyone. We can't be a servant to everyone. But I know, and I would suspect there are people that you're thinking of right now. That God is saying to you, I want you to be a servant to this person. I want you to sacrifice because they have a need. I'm not talking to you about every person in the world. I'm just talking to you about this person. Maybe these groups of people. We sacrifice our rights. We sacrifice our freedom. Because these people, these children, these youth, these neighbors, these people in our family, these people we work with, whatever, have a need. And God has put their need on our hearts. Why do we wrestle to so much to be servants? Because we do, right? I mean, we all wrestle being servants. It's, it's, it's a struggle. And I'm convinced it's because we don't truly believe that we are loved by God. Because, because we don't believe we are loved by God, we spend our lives trying to get people to love us. Trying to grab from people, trying to get people's attention, trying to get things from people. And serving is not a part of that. Unless our serving is a way of getting attention. Because we are trying to fill a void that only God can fill. And that's what's so fascinating about what Isaiah says about Jesus. Beginning in chapter 42 and on through virtually the rest of the book. Isaiah says, let me talk to you about the anointed one who is to come. Let me talk to you about my holy one. The Messiah. He will be a suffering servant. This is who he is. And Paul says to the people in Philippi, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, 
who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the God who calls us to serve. Who loves us so much that Christ comes to serve. To serve so that we might know the fullness of God's love for us. So that in knowing that love, we can be free to serve. And we come to this table recognizing that this is the table of God's serving Savior. This is the table of the one who gave his life for us and rose from the dead that we might have life and ascended to be with the Father and has promised to return for us. The one who calls us to serve is the greatest servant of all. And what fascinates me is that Jesus doesn't serve because he has to. He doesn't serve begrudgingly. Jesus doesn't come to earth because God's got his arm pinned up behind his back and he can't do anything else. It's because he chooses to serve. And when Jesus is born into this world, heaven doesn't mourn. Heaven rejoices, celebrates. And there is something about serving when we do it in the spirit of Christ that brings joy to God and joy to us. Because it is the pathway of life and grace and the fullness of the spirit. So as you think about the call to serve, do you see God's grace in Christ, the servant? And do you hear God calling you to be this kind of servant to someone, a group of people, a person in your life? Father, we thank you for what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. As we prepare to gather at this table, we are reminded of your sacrifice in Christ. A sacrifice of love and mercy and grace. We pray that you will pour out the abundance of your blessing upon the bread and the cup. That as we eat and drink, we may know the joy of Christ in our lives. We may be united together as one in Christ. And that we may know the grace of serving you by serving each other. It is in the name of, through the power of, and the grace of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen.